Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 40, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Hey, my name is Rick again, and I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and The Jesus-Centered Life, and editor of this amazing Bible called The Jesus-Centered Bible. That thing started out as a kind of a glimmer of an idea. What if we could create a Bible that had features in it that no Bible really had had before that would, that would direct you to Jesus no matter where you were reading? So we just started brainstorming things that we would love to have in a Bible if we could have it. And along the way, we started working on these little projects to see if we could figure out how to do them. I mean, we literally were thinking up things as features of this Bible that we didn't know if we could do. <laughs> And uh, after about two years of development, out came the Jesus-Centered Bible, and, and it has about eight or ten features in it that do help to magnetically draw you to Jesus, no matter where you're reading. And some of those, it turns out, are in no other Bible in the world. And I'm talking about this right now because uh, October, for us, is Bible Month. Now, don't go look at your calendar, because it's not going to say Bible Month on it. We've just christened October Bible Month. I really don't think we have permission to do that, but we've done it anyway because we're Bible rebels. So we're saying October is Bible month. We want to really focus on this whole month exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of the Bible. And just a note, the Bible reveals the heart of God and the mission of God, but the book is not a person. I I know sometimes, depending on what church circle you grew up in, there was a tacit sort of expectation that you actually worship the pages of the Bible. Uh, Actually, the Bible reveals the heart of God and gives us an on-ramp into our relationship with Him, sort of history-giving about God's movement in the world and the nature of Jesus and those who were following Jesus and how they interpreted how Jesus was asking them to live. But the Bible actually is not a person itself, it's a book with pages, and the Bible is really our on-ramp into a relationship with Jesus. So how can we better use the lens of the Bible, in this case, of course, the Jesus-centered Bible, to get a more truthful, clear-eyed, sort of magnetic experience of Jesus? So I thought we could focus on a set of books that many theologians point to as the most powerfully illuminating works of theology that we have, to sort of open up for us the beauty and truth of the Bible, and therefore the beauty and truth about Jesus. So these books that theologians point to as some of the best theological works that have so far been produced will surprise you. They're they're called the Chronicles of Narnia. (laughs) Seven children's fantasy books written by the great 20th century apologist, professor, and writer C.S. Lewis. We've all heard of C.S. Lewis. I'm not sure how many of us have actually read something that C.S. Lewis has written. It's it's hard to overestimate the influence C.S. Lewis has had on Christendom in the last hundred years. 
He is among the most most read Christian authors of all time, and the way he thought and the way he saw Jesus have been deeply influential in the church since the days he was writing. Now, he wrote some nonfiction things, uh, but he's probably most well-known for his works of fiction, chief among them, the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, the quality I love the most about Lewis is his uncanny ability to spotlight the truth about Jesus by using a narrative metaphor for him. And in the Narnia books, and these are seven books that sort of tell the story of a group of young English children who accidentally discover a portal into another world called Narnia, and they go into that world and go on many, many adventures and eventually are crowned kings and queens in Narnia, and they go back and forth between this world and their contemporary world in England, and sometimes they're drawn into adventures that they didn't know they were going to be a part of. Sometimes they stumble back into Narnia when they weren't planning to. Um, but the the seven books are a chronicle of their influence and adventures in this world called Narnia, where there are talking animals and dragons and all kinds of things. So Lewis used a metaphor for Jesus in this world called Narnia that is the lion whose name is Aslan. So Aslan is the great lion king, and he shows up in every one of the books. And the reason why theologians point to these books as so profoundly influencing as, as works of theology is that Lewis embedded the truth about what we know about Jesus from the Bible into a, a children's fantasy story and lived out those truths through this character of Aslan. And sometimes when you get a, a, a new perspective on something that you're familiar with, it opens up the familiar to you, and that's what Lewis did. So all this month, we're going to explore individual scenes from some of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. By the way, it doesn't make any difference whether you've read these books or not. I will set up each one of these scenes so it makes sense to you what we're reading, and you can kind of treat this like story time for the next month. We're going to tell a few of Lewis's stories, um, in the land of Narnia, focusing on Aslan, his, his character, metaphor for Jesus, as a way for us to understand Jesus in the pages of Scripture even better. Hope that makes sense. But again, you don't have to know the, the, the books of Narnia to understand what we're about to do, but maybe this will whet your appetite for reading these books. I, I, sometimes adults don't read children's books because, well, for obvious reasons, they're children's books, but these are some children's books that you absolutely should read. If you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, or if it's been a long time, they are a fantastic companion to your daily devotional time in the Bible. You get the truth of the Bible in sort of its unadulterated way by studying the Bible, but then by simultaneously reading books like the Chronicles of Narnia, you will find the truth of the Bible opened up to you in a way that's different than if you hadn't read the Narnia books at all. So I just encourage you to dip back into the, the Chronicles of Narnia if either you've never read them or if it's been a long time. So um, today we're going to explore a story from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, it's the story of Eustace, and I will go into greater detail about who Eustace is and what happened to him in just a second, but... This story is really centrally about redemption. Um, what is the work of redemption by Jesus in us? What is it like in an everyday way? What is Jesus up against? 
as he attempts to uh, bring redemption into our life, and what part do we play in our own redemption? So redemption sounds, you know, it's kind of a churchy word, it's a kind of formal-sounding word, um, and it's, it's the thing that's at really the core, the centrality of our faith, is that we are saved and redeemed by uh, Jesus' act of sacrifice and our belief, trust, and acceptance of him as our Lord. And as a part of that sort of quasi-formula, redemption is its outcome. We are redeemed from the penalty of sin and restored back into relationship with God. So redemption always is spoken of in obvious positive terms, but redemption is also a terrible thing. And let me explain to you what I mean. When God sets out to redeem us, what he's redeeming is a person who's horribly twisted and ruined by sin from the very beginning that we are not as we were created to be, and our default inclinations are often destructive and even evil. Um, we see evidence of this all around us. So how do you redeem something that is horribly broken without forcing that broken thing to submit to your will? This is the challenge that faces Jesus. He, he invites, he doesn't force. So our redemption, if we go unredeemed, we certainly will experience destruction in our lives, and he loves us and does not want us to experience destruction, but he can only invite us toward redemption. He's not going to force us into it. So that challenge in and of itself presents great difficulty for one who intends to love us into redemption. If we expect our redemption to be gentle, um, that's not promised to us. <laughs> the we don't really have any idea of the weight required for our redemption. That's As I get older, I get more aware of how sort of we take for granted the work that Jesus is trying to do in our hearts and lives. We don't understand the weight that is necessary to leverage us toward redemption. So we have an expectation that's often cultivated by our church culture that the blessing of God is sort of like, well, there's this video that's going around the internet right now that uh, somebody uh, passed on to me because I had just come back from Kenya, and I had actually been on a safari where I was in an open-sided Land Rover for 11 hours in the savanna with wild animals all around us. It was an extraordinary experience. Um, but we saw lions two or three times in the course of that 11-hour day uh, and one time, these lions were literally like six feet from us in an open-sided Land Rover, two male lions resting under these two bushes. And uh, we were all had this heightened awareness that our guides, who are also our drivers, were uh, professionals and very adept at getting us close to these animals, but always keeping us safe from them. So after I got back, somebody passed on this video that was going around, and I don't think it was in Kenya that this video was taken. It was in another African country, but it was people on a safari kind of like what I was on, and it's a video of a full-grown um, lion climbing into their open-sided Land Rover, and this was extraordinary. I thought what I was going to see is carnage, <laughs> but the reason this video made the rounds on the internet is that this wild lion climbed into their vehicle and licked the people in the vid video like it was a kitten, kind of nuzzled some of them and licked them, and it's extraordinary to watch this thing, and it's also, knowing what I know, actually having been on a safari, I think, 
I can't believe that the people in charge of this allowed anything like this to happen. I know it happened suddenly, but nobody inside the vehicle does anything but sit there while the lion climbs up in there and starts licking and nuzzling them like it's a kitten. So eventually the lion leaves. But in the church, we've kind of presented one of Jesus' names is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We've presented the lion of the tribe of Judah as if he's that lion. He's, he's kind of a gentle, kitteny kind of lion who will climb into your Land Rover and lick you. When actually, real lions, wild lions, they rarely do that. If they're hungry, they will eat you. <laughs> and it's interesting that C.S. Lewis chose the lion to personify Jesus. Now, of course, he's hooking into one of Jesus' names, but he's also trying to capture some of the essence of Jesus' mix of ferocity and tenderness. And because that's how we experience lions, we, we look at lions and we, 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 kind of, uh, we kind of want the lion to climb into our Land Rover and nuzzle with us. Um, if you have a cat, and I've always had cats my entire adult life, they are not what critics of cats often call them, which are they're, they're disinterested and they don't care about human beings. Oh my gosh, cats have been the most affectionate animals, uh, pets, I've ever had. So we have a very affectionate kitten right now named Tilly, who loves to cuddle, who uh, loves to be stroked and held, and um, she loves people. So we, we kind of hope Jesus is kind of like that, um, sort of a domesticated lion, one that will nuzzle and cuddle. Um, but we're very aware also that lions have this innate ferocity to them as well. I think that's why Lewis chose the, uh, a lion as a metaphor, because a lion is a mix of these two things. So, so um, is, uh, is Jesus more like the lion that crawls into the Land Rover and licks and nuzzles, or is Jesus the lion who pursues, pounces, and kills? Uh, well, he's both. <laughs> so um, I mentioned that ferocity is a central aspect of Aslan, the character that, uh, that C.S. Lewis created, it's interesting, in, when you read these stories of, of Narnia, the character of Aslan, who pops in and out of the story all the time, he creates great passion in the people who follow him. I mean, die-for-you passion. But also, he never leaves people, what I would say, comfortable in these stories. They're greatly drawn to him, they have great intimacy with, the, with Aslan, but there's always also lurking underneath there this ferocity that makes you aware, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not with a tame zoo lion right now. There's something dangerous about the, about the lion Aslan as well. So I think that uh, so brilliantly captures um, the character of Jesus. Uh, what Lewis does with the character of Aslan just brilliantly captures that aspect of Jesus that he's calling us to trust him, even though, as Lewis says, he's not a tame lion. Now, this is a tall order. Trust is a central theme in the New Testament. It's a central theme in our relationship with Jesus, but it's not a trust based on our quote-unquote safety, meaning Jesus is like a kitten who will crawl onto our lap. Um, therefore, we can trust that nothing ever dangerous will happen to us in relationship with him. That's not the case. Uh, so the, the people in Lewis's stories are never quite fully comfortable <laughs> around Aslan, 
even though they're drawn to him and they experience intimacy with him, they're very aware that he's also not a tame lion. Uh, when I was talking with Steph Hilbury the other day about this theme, she she mentioned this kind of perplexing little verse in Hosea chapter 6. Here it is from the New Living Translation, Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. So it's the prophet calling the people to return to the Lord. And then he next says, He has torn us to pieces. (laughs) Now he will heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. Wow, now that's disturbing. (laughs) He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. Well, what could that possibly be about, and why would we be drawn to a God who's capable of tearing us to pieces with the thought that he might heal us on the other side? That's the tension. All right, let's jump now into the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is the story of Eustace and his encounter with a dragon. So Eustace is the cousin of one of these English children who have been drawn into this world called Narnia. And he's, he's around his cousins, and he hears them talking about, every now and then, about this world that they've been a part of, and he thinks they're just imagining this world, and so he mocks them because he's a rotten, odious, contemptible, cruel little boy. And he mercilessly mocks his, his cousins for this belief they have that they have been in this magical world called Narnia, until one day he is also drawn into that world with them. And he actually has to experience this world firsthand. And uh, it's a, a, needless to say, a shock to the system. He's a pampered, cushy little boy whose only entertainment in life is making other people miserable. And all of a sudden, he's part of this grand adventure on the open sea in a ship called the Dawn Treader. And the, the ship lands on an island. They're searching for a lost nobleman. And the ship lands on an island uh, trying to find this lost nobleman. And Eustace, who has an aversion to work, decides to wander away on the island so he can get out of doing any work. And while he's wandered away, he gets lost. And while he's lost, he finds himself um, in a dark valley, and he witnesses a dragon coming out of its cave, heading over to a pool of water to get a drink, and on the way to the pool of water, the dragon dies. Well, this is all obviously shocking for this English boy Eustace to to witness, and he finally goes down when he's sure that the dragon is dead, and he peers into the dragon's cave, and he sees this huge mound of treasure sitting inside there, and he thinks, oh my gosh, I'm rich. I'm fabulously rich. All I have to do is get back on the ship with some of this riches and get back home, and I'll never have to work another day in my life. So he's he's starting to stuff his pockets full of uh, diamonds and jewels, and he finds a gold bracelet that he puts on his arm, and he has to kind of put it all the way up on his arm because it's it's too big to fit around his wrist. And while he's rummaging around in the treasure, he he starts to get sleepy and eventually falls asleep. And when he wakes up, um, it takes him a while to realize this, but all of that greed and avarice that has been dominating his thoughts, while he sleeps, he actually turns into a dragon. He wakes up in the skin of a dragon. As I said, it takes him a while to realize that he's actually a dragon. He scares himself when he wakes up because he thinks he's sleeping next to a dragon, but actually he is a dragon. Eventually he's able to uh, communicate to the rest of his party by 
wordlessly communicating to them that he has been turned into a dragon. <laughs> they figure out that Eustace is no longer a boy, he's a dragon. And along the way, because he's now very lonely, and he has very little hope of ever being a boy again, he's relegated to this life of being a dragon on this island, and the loneliness just sears him. And, and Eustace becomes full of despair. He cries all the time. It's unusual to see a dragon crying, but there you have it. And as he weeps these hot dragon tears, Aslan arrives because he has mercy and compassion on him. And Aslan, the lion, leads the dragon Eustace to this garden on the top of a mountain, and then to a well at the center of that garden. It's kind of a, uh, a step-down swimming pool kind of well. It's a, big enough for a dragon to fully immerse himself in. And Eustace looks at the well and knows that if he could just get into that water, the pain in his leg would be soothed, because that gold bracelet that he put on his arm before he went to sleep now is constricting his dragon leg, and it's incredibly painful. I mean, the pain never leaves him. And so uh, Eustace believes that if he can just get into that pool of water, maybe the pain that is searing away at his skin will, will go away at least for a little bit. So as he's contemplating getting into the water, Aslan tells him that he's going to have to get undressed first. Well, Eustace is confused by this because, after all, he's a dragon, and dragons have skin, not clothing, and he doesn't know what to do. And pretty soon he figures out, I think what Aslan means is that my scales, the skin and the scales of the dragon have to come off. So with his claws, Eustace starts to kind of try to tear at his dragon skin, and he peels off a little bit of a layer, kind of like after you have a sunburn and you peel off some of the dead skin. He's trying to peel some of this dragony skin off of himself, and he peels off a layer and he just discovers, you know, what you would, just more dragon skin underneath it, um, this rough layer, and he tries again, and after three times, he realizes he's never going to be able to get this skin off, and he can't make himself clean or get rid of the pain that he has or shed this skin on his own. Here's where I'll pick up the story and read it directly from the book. "'You will have to let me undress you,' says Aslan." So desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back. Laying anxious on the ground, here's what Eustace felt. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I'd been. And then Aslan caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. So here's this iconic scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. When I first read this, 
this story back when I was a, a teenager. Uh, this is the scene that captured me the most, spoke most deeply to me, and has stayed with me my whole life. What is happening here in this story, and what do we think is happening? So, as I mentioned before, um, our redemption is a weighty thing. It, uh, what we need is not just a tweak to our persona or our identity as, I'm basically a good person, I just need a few tweaks. What this story reveals is, no, it has to go much deeper. The dragon skin that we wear has to be torn completely from us, and it's not a job we can do on our own. We try and try and try to make ourselves better people, but we, we don't get much past the outer layer of our skin. We need something that will go much, much deeper. And if it's going to go much deeper, we know that there's going to be pain associated with it. When we try to strip off our own skin, we very consciously avoid doing anything that is too very painful. That's just human nature. We don't visit pain on ourselves very often. So if we're going to have our skin really peeled away, we're going to have to invite the lion to sink his claws into it and pull it away from us. Jesus takes great, great risks with us, and he invites submission and trust rather than requiring it. So in this story, the key moment, the tipping point in this story, is when Eustace, who is now a dragon, decides he's just desperate enough to do what dragons never do, which is lie down on his back, expose his tender underbelly, and allow a, a wild lion to sink his claws into that tender underbelly. This is not something that we do, typically, unless we feel desperate, as Eustace did. The loneliness, the hopelessness of his life going forward, the realization of his own brattiness and how he had impacted so many people negatively in his life now has come home to him. He understands why people don't much like him, and now in these moments he's longing for the opportunity to be restored in relationship with them, but he can't. He's a dragon, and he doesn't know how to get out of this. And Aslan offers him a path, but of course, just like us, the first thing we do when we're offered that path is to take the least painful route we can. Oh, I just need a little tweak. I need to try a little harder. I'm going to redouble my efforts. You know, maybe I'll start that six-week reading plan. We always have some kind of plan that seems safer, more palatable, less painful than the plan Jesus has in mind, because Jesus wants real redemption. He doesn't want our outer dragon skin to be shaved off a little bit while we remain a dragon. He wants transformation. He wants real redemption. In order for that to happen, there has to be trust. When Eustace the dragon rolls over on, the, on his back and exposes his tender underbelly to the, to the lion, he does the one thing that sets in motion our redemption and restoration. He exposes his vulnerability to a lion who is both tender and ferocious at the same time. He exposes himself and invites. He invites Aslan to rip away his skin. You know, trust, I mentioned, is a, is a central theme in the New Testament. The other night in our small group when we were, had about 15 teenagers in our home, we were talking about Matthew chapter 6, and uh, 
there are several things in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is urging us to keep these things secret, unlike what the Pharisees do. He's asking us to, to keep secret our good deeds. Don't, don't trumpet all the good things we're doing to other people, because the Pharisees do that. Instead, get your reward from me instead of them. He's asking in Matthew 6 for us to not pray out loud in a performance way so that others can see how, well, how great we pray. He's saying, no, no, the, the beauty of prayer is that it's a conversation between two intimate friends. Keep it that way. Don't make it a performance. Keep it between you and me. And then the last thing he says is keep secret. When you decide to fast, which is basically to discipline yourself in some way or to, to keep yourself from something for the purpose of focusing on your relationship with Jesus, don't let other people know what you're doing. Don't do some obvious things that show what, what an incredibly disciplined, self-sacrificing person you are. Let's just keep it between you and me. So in three different cases, Jesus is asking us to not get the immediate reward for any of these things. Instead, keep it between him and us. Make it an intimate thing. And what emerged out of this conversation about, uh, about these three things that Jesus asked us to keep secret is, is that what the kids were discovering as a common theme amongst these is, is that Jesus is asking us to trust him. Um, he's asking us to forego the immediate pleasure of the reward for these things, or the immediate propping up of our identity, in favor of something that may offer no concrete reward, but only the, the gift and blessing of relationship with Him. He's asking us to forego that and trust Him to reward us in ways that we don't understand and might not ever, might not ever experience in this life. He's asking us, will you trust me to leave these things between you and me and not steal the reward on the outside? So it, what was fascinating is that this whole conversation evolved into a conversation about trust and how often Jesus was making trust the basis of our relationship. He's, he's all the time inviting us to trust him and not rewarding us in the moment for that trust, because he wants us to trust his heart, not the circumstances of the reward. So this, obviously, is a risky strategy. Um, what if we say no? What if we say, no, I, I, I want the reward now? What if Eustace had said, I, I want to be free, but I can't expose myself to your claws. That will be worse than the pain I'm experiencing now. He could have said that. Um, Aslan was inviting Eustace to risk, and he wasn't leaning over and rolling the dragon over and forcing him to expose himself. He let Eustace do that on his own. So Jesus takes great risks on behalf of our freedom. And I want to uh, uh, now compare this story that we just dived into with Eustace and Aslan and the dragon skin coming off to the story of Jesus' encounter with the man we call the rich young ruler. And we've focused on this, uh, this story in, in the past in the podcast, but I think uh, with this kind of on-ramp, we'll see it in a different light. So I want you to think about this story with, with Eustace and the dragon skin, and now think about this encounter Jesus has with the rich young ruler. I want you to imagine Eustace as the rich young ruler now, and maybe this will shed some light into uh, Jesus' heart and purpose in this sort of electric encounter with this guy. So here we'll start off. 
And someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you notice, by the way, the commandments Jesus lists off here, he leaves out some of them from from the Ten Commandments. He lists all of the commandments that have to do with our horizontal relationships with others. He leaves out the commandments that have to do directly with his relationship between he and us. Continuing on here, the young man says to him, All these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete or perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All right, here we have a young man who's full of self-confidence. He has done the good work. He has kept the commandments. He is dialed in. He, essentially, is saying, I've been able to tear off my dragon skin by myself, Jesus. I've done all this by myself. I've, I've clawed away at it long enough that I have been redeemed and renewed all on my own. I've been able to keep these commandments and do what I've needed to do my whole life. So what else you got? And then Jesus exposes this man. He exposes, basically, his dragon skin, because he asks the man, Are you then able to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me? And suddenly the man is exposed. No, he's not able to. No, the the idea that he's followed all the commandments and kept himself clean and um, has done everything right is exposed. No, he can't give up his possessions. His greed is too much. No, he does not have a passion for God that supersedes the passion for his stuff and his position, because when he's offered intimacy with Jesus, he rejects it in favor of his possessions. He's still a dragon with dragon skin, and all of his clawing at his skin has not um, done the trick. And just as Eustace realized after three times of trying to, to claw the skin off of himself that he wasn't able to do it, This man turns and leaves Jesus because he recognizes he's not able to do what Jesus is asking him to do. He's not able to undress himself. When Eustace realizes that he's not able to undress himself, a beautiful thing happens. Desperation. (laughs) Eustace now is desperate enough to risk trusting Aslan, the one with sharp claws, risk asking Aslan to undress him himself. We don't know if the rich young ruler walks away and has a similar change of heart. My my bet is on the rich young ruler. My bet is that 
this encounter, just as this encounter that Eustace has with Aslan, sticks in him and wheedles its way to a desperate place. My, my money is on the rich young ruler coming to his senses, recognizing that what's just happened is his dragon skin has been exposed, and that his hunger for Jesus grows in the interim. We don't know. We don't specifically hear what happens with the rich young ruler after this encounter. But uh, maybe it's really my hope that what goes on in Eustace goes on in the heart of the rich young ruler as well, that he decides to return to Jesus and offer himself in a vulnerable way to him, metaphorically showing his tender underside to Jesus and saying, I'm ready now. I'm ready for you to tear into me. I know it's going to be painful, but my longing to be free, my longing to be whole, supersedes the threat of the pain. So I invite you, Jesus, to sink your claws into me. You know, this encounter that Eustace has and the rich young ruler has is our encounter too. Uh, This is the way that Jesus approaches us for redemption. Our redemption happens through the leverage of our desperation. As long as we believe that we can live our lives tearing away at our own skin, living a pretty darn good life, needing just a few tweaks, we'll never invite the kind of undressing that has to happen in order for us to truly emerge new outside of our dragon skin. So what can we take away from for our everyday life here? Well, I think we are left with the same question Eustace and the rich young ruler had to grapple with. Will I let Jesus undress me so that he may dress me again? That's the central question. Will I let him undress me and then also invite him to dress me again after that? Like Eustace, will we make ourselves that vulnerable to him? Will we tell him the truth about ourselves, not for his benefit, but for ours? Have you ever recognized, um, I have many times over, that there are truths that I keep from Jesus as if he doesn't know them? Um, I treat Jesus as if he's another human being who I can easily keep my secrets from. Have you ever recognized, uh, I often recognize this, that how ridiculous it is that this thing that I think I'm keeping inside... um, that I have functionally believed that I'm keeping it also from Jesus. When you have those moments, you have a choice to make. Will I be honest with Jesus about what is clearly honest about me? Not for his benefit, he already knows, but for my benefit. Will I out myself? Will I drag into the light with Jesus what is clearly true inside? Well, that is the, the, the step toward inviting Jesus to undress us. Uh, because it's inviting him to see our vulnerability. It's inviting him to look on our tender underbelly. So will we tell Jesus the truth about ourselves? That's the question. Instead of uh, spinning the truth about ourselves, will we tell the raw truth to him? Will we expose the most tender areas of our soul to his claws? Now, we would like to expose the most tender area of our souls to his fuzzy fur and his purring, but 
But he's asking us, will you expose the tender parts of you to my claws? Will you allow me to undress you? It's going to be painful, but there's something on the other side of the pain. When, uh, toward the end, uh, when he was heading toward the cross, Jesus was trying to reassure his disciples, and he, he has a funny way of reassuring them. He spends most of two chapters in, in the Gospel of John explaining to them all the horrible things that are about to happen to them, because he's, he's going to the cross and he's going to his Father. But he puts all that in context by saying, hey, this is going to feel like the pangs of birth. This is going to feel like very painful, like giving birth feels very painful. But on the other side of that pain is new life. So I'm encouraging you, bear with the pain, because new life comes on the other side of this. And here Jesus is saying the same thing to us. Will you expose your tender underbelly to him for the hope of new life on the other side of that? Will we then invite him to dress us again on the other side, to give us new clothes? This is what it means essentially to be born again, that we walk in new skin, that our inclinations are leaning always toward the Spirit instead of our old sinful nature. To be dressed again means to live in the clothing of the kingdom of God. So what it boils down to is it for you and for me, it means we have a choice to be vulnerable or not with him, and to be vulnerable or not with others. Jesus is always invitational. He invites, he doesn't force. So will we invite him that's the, that's the key question. Will we invite his claws? Where in your life have you withheld that invitation? I can guarantee you, wherever it is, there's dragon skin there and a gold bracelet around your leg that's killing you. So the question then is, how desperate are you? Are you tired of that pain? Are you desperate enough to turn over on your dragon back and show Aslan the tenderest places, and to invite him to dress you himself? That's the question of the day. Hey, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, just looking for our podcast section in Season 3, Episode 40. Um, make sure if you've uh, never uh, experienced the Jesus-Centered Bible, there's a link there that you can Go to our page that gives you a, a kind of a, an overview of what is in that Bible. I highly encourage you to check it out. And we're only really about three months out from Christmas, and the Jesus-Centered Bible makes for a fantastic Christmas gift. And I think we actually—I just saw this in my email box the other day—I think um, Adam and, and uh, Steph and others in our marketing area have created a, a promotion right now where if you buy a Jesus-Centered Bible, you get a free matching— Jesus-Centered Bible Journal to go with it. So um, so please do check out the link that we have on our page. If you don't have a Jesus-Centered Bible, please, please check it out. If you already have one, you already know what a beautiful experience it is reading this, this Bible. So consider buying a few for Christmas gifts this year. But don't forget, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, the name of our podcast. It, embedded in that name is, is our heart and passion. We want to slow down and pay better attention to Jesus. This is a podcast from Lifetree, by the way. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get all the latest podcasts when they're released. We'll talk again next time. <laughs>